you will join me in Galatians chapter 6 this morning, we will be looking at verses 6 through 10 in our continued series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the title of our sermon this morning is Spiritual Sowing. And the key words for our worshipers in training are sow, reap, and grow. Now, growing up in Colorado, and yes, it is pronounced Colorado, my family lived in a house that was on top of a very large hill. And we called them hills. You southerners would call them mountains. And in our dining room, we had a huge window And as you looked out the window to the southwest, the entire view was taken up by the beauty of Pikes Peak. Now, if you're not familiar with Pikes Peak, it is a 14,115-foot mountain. It is the highest summit in the southern front range of the Rocky Mountains in North America. I saw that mountain every single day. As a family, we had... At times, driven to the top of the mountain to show visitors. We hiked, we picnicked all along the way as it led to the top. And for people who didn't live where I did, it was a big deal. It was marvelous. It was breathtaking. And quite literally, when you get to the top, it is breathtaking. Not much air at 14,000 feet. But for me, growing up, seeing it every single day... I didn't pay it much attention. It was there. It was always there. And truth be told, as a boy, it was kind of annoying to me that people wanted to sit on the porch or sit at the window and just stare at a mountain. I couldn't figure out what the big deal was. And while many probably marked my ignorance as being youthful and surely what was a big part of it, I'm sure for... Uh, in one sense, to many people, it was like me standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and just saying it's a big hole in the ground. But here's the reality for all of us. The thing that kills excitement and enthusiasm in our lives more than anything is time. People grow weary of wonderful things. I guarantee that most of you could walk into my old house, myself included at this point, Look out that window and be absolutely mesmerized by its beauty and its, its sheer magnitude. But after a week or two of being there, it would just be there. And you don't pay so much attention to it after a while. Have you ever gotten a new car? You washed it every week? You told your passengers to keep their hands in their laps? Not touch anything? However, in time, you're dropping French fries in between the seats. You're spilling coffee on the middle console and saying it adds character to your ride. Perhaps you've gone on a vacation to the beach and as you got in your room, you looked out over the water and you breathed in the fresh, salty air. You were so filled with peace and so relaxed, you didn't think it could get any better. But after a week, you hardly noticed it anymore. In fact, at night, you started closing the door because the sound of the waves became a bit annoying. And we can all name these kinds of things in our lives. 
Millionaires grow tired of money, even though they want more. Kids grow tired of their toys, even though they never want you to get rid of them. And Christians grow weary of doing good. What does that look like for you? Perhaps teaching a Sunday school class. At first, it was filled with excitement and enthusiasm, and you were spending time a few evenings each week studying the lesson, preparing your teaching aids, and all the discussion questions. But by week 10, you were letting your spouse drive to church so you could look it over before you walked in the door. The thrill is gone. At first, you felt such a strong desire to start leading a small group or welcoming visitors or cleaning up the church campus or serving in some outreach ministry. But now you've grown weary in doing good, the same old things. All the excitement, all the the drive and the passion is zapped away. It becomes a chore. You lost heart. I'm sure all of us have been there at one time or another. Perhaps you're there right now. When our text this morning, the Apostle Paul deals with this tendency of our hearts to pull back from the very things we're called to pursue in our Christian lives (coughs) with a strong exhortation to us to keep pressing on. Now remember, Paul is expanding his thoughts from what we saw at the end of chapter 5. And he's continued to explain and give examples of what it means for us to keep in step with the Spirit. So in these five verses we're looking at this morning, we're going to consider our tendency to selfishly serve our own flesh instead of lovingly and sacrificially sowing to the Spirit that which is pleasing to God for the good of our neighbors. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 975 this morning. And we're going to look at the text under three points this morning. And the first one is in verse 6, and it is this. The church has the responsibility in supporting the work of the ministry. Look with me, Galatians 6 and verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, as we unfold Paul's examples of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit, as he exhorted us back in chapter 5 and verse 25, we remember that all along the way, as we saw in verse 2 of chapter 6, the exhortation is to bear one another's burdens. And we talked about that in terms of restoring a person who has fallen into temptation and sin in a loving and gentle manner. And now he switches gears a bit to a new example of what that looks like. Now the wording is maybe a bit strange here in verse 6, but in essence what Paul is saying is that those who are taught the word of God have the responsibility to bear the financial burden of those who are their teachers. In other words, the church should bear the financial burden of those who carry out the primary responsibility of teaching in the church so that the teacher can be freed up to engage in prayer and study of the word, their primary task of preaching and teaching the word of God. Now, this is, I admit, speculative, but I think we can assume 
that this was very likely a problem in Galatia as a result of the false teaching that was coming from the Judaizers. Now, the arguments could have gone in several directions. Perhaps they were thinking that they had already gone a great deal further than the others in their personal devotion to God because in believing the teaching of the Judaizers, they were submitting themselves to the law of Moses and they showed their faithfulness through the flesh. They didn't need to pay anyone anything. They were showing how faithful they were through the flesh. Others perhaps had the mentality of being free in Christ. And they were so free with their freedom that they did whatever they wanted with whatever they had and it was all for them to enjoy themselves. And in fact, perhaps they said, who needs teaching? We, we know enough of the truth. We have Jesus. We don't need to know anymore. So we don't know exactly what the issue was and why Paul brings this up in his letter, but we do know that he emphasizes this very aspect of bearing another's burdens. It's right in the midst of this conversation. If we're going to keep in step with the Spirit, we're going to bear the burdens of one another. So we have to assume this was an issue for the Galatians in some way. Now, no doubt this principle that he raises was laid down by Jesus and it was repeated elsewhere by the Apostle Paul. For example, when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples to preach the word, what did he tell them? Remember, he instructed them to not take any food along with them because he said, the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, the people they preached to had a responsibility to care for them. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. He writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, if you have an ox who's trampling the grain out, you don't put a muzzle over his mouth so he won't eat it. You allow him to eat it while he is working. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? So there's a lot that can be drawn out here, but here's some simple application for us. <clears throat> a pastor's primary responsibility is prayer and preaching and teaching. In Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul says that pastors are given to the church to do the work of the ministry. So yes, it's a pastor's calling, And it's using his spiritual gifts in the same way that all of us are called to use our gifts in different capacities. But it is also a pastor's work. It is his job. And Paul's point is that a pastor should be freed up to do his job. Specifically, he's addressing a financial freedom so that he's able to be supported. To not have to find other sources of income that would distract from his labor. The focus of a pastor's life should be finding the meaning of biblical texts, discovering how that meaning fits with the totality of Scripture, finding ways to relate it to contemporary life and communicate it in a way that's useful to God's people. This takes a lot of effort if it's done well. (coughs) And it takes a lot of focused and individual, um, quiet, undistracted time. A pastor has a responsibility to be around the people of God, no doubt. But the majority of his time 
during the week should be spent on his knees or in his chair. And one of the things that is really encouraging to me in ministry here at Ephesus Church is that all of you value the preaching and teaching of the Word of God to such a degree that you find it a worthy sacrifice to pay me and to give me the time I need in order to do these very things. Some weeks are busier than others. Sometimes situations arise that pull away from that time. But all in all, if I am disciplined and well-rested and able to focus... I have the time to do what I'm called to do here. And that is a testimony to your willingness to bear the burden of allowing this to happen, hopefully for your spiritual benefit in the long run. (coughs) And just to be clear, you pay me to be able to do what I do, and I am very thankful for it. Any pastor would be lying if he didn't tell you that some days we think, I can't believe I get paid to do this. And then other days we think, you could not pay me enough to make it worth doing this. But I'm cared for by you, both on the corporate level of care through which I'm given in compensation and from many of you individually who bless me and my family in various ways throughout the year. And I am incredibly thankful. My family is thankful. But for all of us, myself included, we should be giving to financially support the work of the ministry. And if we're not, the biblical exhortation is that we are not keeping in step with the Spirit. And in this way, even though it's Paul's main focus in verse 6, I'm not just talking about those who preach and teach. I'm talking about the whole of the ministry, all that the local church sets out to do. All of us as Christians have a responsibility. We have an obligation to set aside a portion of what God gives us through our labors to financially support the full breadth of ministry that is undertaken by the local church. And in doing so, remember back in verse 2, we are fulfilling the law of Christ by loving one another, by loving the church, and by loving our neighbors. Okay. Enough on that. The second point from our text this morning is in verses 7 and 8. And Paul's point is this, that the seeds that we plant determine the harvest that we will reap. Look with me in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, as we've looked at Paul's letter to the Galatians, I hope we can all agree that the predominant theme has been that Christianity and the gospel are vastly different from all of the teaching of the Judaizers and what they were promoting throughout the churches in Galatia. And we can expand this and say that Christianity and the gospel are vastly different from any other religion. How is that? Well, all religions in the world, no matter what they are, say, do the right thing or else you will not go to heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever that is. In other words, do the right thing or else you will be judged. And we can sum every religious idea in the world up by that uh, 
by that way of um, doing things. Every other religious idea in the world comes down to that. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not follow our rules, do our works, walk in our way, or you will be judged. And so Paul is correcting this and he's coming along and saying, whatever your worldview is, whatever your idea is about who God is and what he does, that's not Christianity. No, Christianity comes along and says, no, the essence of the faith is not do. The essence of the faith is done. So all other religious ideas say do or be judged. While Christianity says Jesus was judged and it's all done. Now believe and rest in his doing so so that you will now do out of a loving, thankful, joyful obedience that isn't for the sake of earning anything at all. So you see, Christianity is utterly unique. Now in Christianity, the idea of works that is completely and totally bound up in the human heart is cast aside and the foundation of grace appears, which says even if you want to work for it, you can't earn it because the standard isn't what you, uh, what you think you know or you think you can do or have done. The standard is absolute perfection from second one. And you can't do that. So instead of trying to live up to perfection because you've already failed, submit to, love, enjoy, and follow the one who is perfect and all that he has done for you on your behalf. That's the essence of Christianity. That's the essence of the gospel. But then all of a sudden, we run into verses 7 and 8. And here, it seems like Paul is saying something completely different than what I just explained, doesn't it? It sounds like Paul is saying, do the right thing, don't sin, don't go along with your sinful nature, or else God will get you. If you do the right thing, you'll go to heaven. You do the wrong thing, you won't. That's what it seems like he's saying. And, and surely if we isolate these two verses from everything else Paul has written in this letter, we could come to that conclusion. But we cannot assume that Paul's going to finish out this amazing letter by completely unraveling all that he has argued for over the last five chapters. Paul has gone to great lengths to separate his message from every other message and even goes as far as to say, if someone comes to you and they're preaching to you something other than what God used to save you, whether it's me or an angel from heaven, let them be accursed. The one true gospel is the only gospel and there are no other options. So nobody sets out to write a letter and especially under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in the end, in one sentence, completely disregards and discredits everything else that they've said. So we have to conclude that there's more to what's going on here. So first, let's think about the basic principle. Paul says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In other words, if you plant zucchini, you're not going to get bell peppers, it doesn't matter how badly you want bell peppers. 
It doesn't matter how much you pray for or hope for or wish for bell peppers. If you plant zucchini, you will get zucchini as long as it grows. (laughs) You can believe it. You can feel it. You can have an amazing experience where you felt like the whole existence was moving you to get bell peppers, but alas, it's zucchini. It's an objective fact. You reap what you sow. If you sow nothing, you reap nothing. If you sow poorly, you get a poor crop. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, and so on. It makes sense. But here's the other part of what he writes. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, if you've ever planted seeds, you know you plant them in the ground, and at first it seems like nothing is going on. It may seem like it's just going to stay under the surface. But eventually, it will grow. All of you parents, you've had little paper cups in your windowsill with some dirt and some bean seeds with your kids. You get to watch that happen. Eventually, it breaks through the surface. Now, in the physical aspect of things, we tend to understand all of this. If I say I strongly believe with all of my heart that gravity does not exist, and so I am going to prove it by jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, I'm going to realize very quickly that gravity does, in fact, exist. It is an objective reality. And in a matter of a few seconds, I am going to hear Jesus say, What were you thinking? But for some reason, we often don't think that same way when it comes to spiritual truths and morality. We attempt to redefine objective realities. So you might say something like, well, something may be immoral for you, but it's not immoral for me. I have my beliefs and you have yours. And people say things like that and they believe things like that until you steal their car or break into their house or take their wallet. Hey, you can't do that. Why not? Because it's what? Because it's wrong. Well, now we agree that's wrong. But if we each define what is moral and what is true, then how can I draw such a conclusion that something is wrong? So here's the point. What Paul is doing here is really slapping that kind of worldview in the face and saying, no, there really is an objective moral order just like there's an objective physical order to things. So you can say all day long, I believe that everybody has to make up their own minds about what's right and what's wrong for them. Ah, but your response to me stealing your wallet and breaking your car window proves to me that your heart, in your heart you really do understand there's objective moral order. So that's fundamental to Paul's argument here. Whatever you reap, you will sow without a doubt. It will happen. Now, back up a few words where Paul says, God is not mocked. Again, out of context, we can get the wrong idea here. He's not saying, do the wrong thing and God will destroy you with thunderbolts and pestilence and devouring locusts. 
That's not Christianity. That's karma. That's Eastern mysticism that says if something goes wrong in our lives, it has to be because we did something wrong to bring that on to ourselves. If I get a disease, it must be because I said something wrong or I wasn't living right, and so God struck me with some kind of terrible punishment. And the opposite is also wrong. It's karma, not Christianity, to say, I did all the right things, so I will be blessed. I'm living right, so everything's going to work out in my favor. That's not Christianity. But that's not what Paul has in mind in any of this. When he says God is not mocked, he's saying what Moses said in Numbers 32, your sins will find you out. So let me try to clear this up for us. Paul is telling us, listen, you cannot be flippant and nonchalant about your sin. You cannot treat God lightly. He won't be mocked. (laughs) The judgment that comes in your life (coughs) is as a result of breaking a natural order of what God has designed and created. So, for example, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And what are the natural consequences of that? In time, you will be famished and you will starve. Everything is tied together. So, if uh, you are supposed to change the oil in your car every 3,000 miles, but instead you wait every time to do it every 20,000 miles, the car is going to break down. I don't know much about cars, but I know that. I don't pay attention to that little sticker in the window. Why does that happen? Why does it break down? Because you didn't follow the natural order of how it was designed to work. So you see, we don't need a car monitor to walk around fining people or punishing people for not changing their oil every 3,000 miles. The consequences of that are going to take shape regardless. More laws and more rules are not going to change the fact that they're working outside of the boundaries that have been established already. And in doing so, there are going to be consequences. So we don't need lightning bolts and famine and disease to snap us back into shape. We have natural consequences to our actions, reaping what we sow. So how does this tie back to our previous point and what he says in verse 8. God has made all of us with hearts that function in a very specific way. And I'm talking spiritually here, not physically. So when God tells us in his word that we have a responsibility and an obligation to give sacrificially for the work of ministry, he's not in heaven saying, well, this person has a very bad attitude and is treating others wrongly and he hates puppy dogs, so I'm going to put this huge financial burden on him to straighten him out and remind him who's boss. In fact, it's quite the opposite of that. God is saying, I created the human heart and I know how it works in light of the fact that there is sin within it. So I want you to give away a portion of what I give to you so that you're not solely focused on yourself, but you have an eye toward others and you have an eye toward things that matter. Because if you spend it all on yourself, it's going to hurt you in the end. Being self-focused will take you down. 
It will ruin your heart. You won't be like Jesus, and I'm conforming you more and more to be like Jesus so that you will see the joy of generosity. You will become more like my son. So one of the main takeaway points here is that God has designed things in a natural order for a reason, and that reason is our good. It is for our good. And even though it may seem difficult, it may seem burdensome, it may seem like something that isn't pleasing to us, and it may seem like doing the exact opposite of what God commands actually feels better and looks more fun and feels more satisfying, in the end, he has actually designed it for your good. Believe it or not, nothing that God has designed and commanded is with the purpose of making you miserable. It is always, every time, for your good. And if we had time, I could go through all kinds of things to include your money and your relationships and on and on and on and look at God's word and see what God has commanded. And I, <coughs> I'm guessing you could think of commands right now. And we can find in what ways God has designed it for our good in the long run. Now, I want to say this. There really are not a whole lot of things God commanded us not to do that if we did it, that it doesn't feel good at first in the immediate aftermath. So, for example, we're commanded to forgive and to not hold grudges. But you're not kidding anybody if you tell me that it doesn't feel good initially to not forgive someone. If you think someone has wronged you, there's nothing in your natural existence that says it's not really enjoyable to sit for a few minutes and to stew and be angry and think of all the mean, nasty, horrible things you want to say to that person. It feels good in our flesh to call someone else and say, you will never believe what they said to me. And then you just go on and on about it. But here's Paul's point. Sin is a seed. And in its early stages, it doesn't seem to do anything. It's under the surface. It doesn't seem to sprout. So it's no big deal. I was bitter and angry. I talked bad about them. And man, did it feel good. But it's all over. No consequences. Ah, but eventually you will reap what you sow. It's a natural order of things. You don't, you don't think that just by being bitter right away your life is destroyed. But whatever you sow against the will of God is also against the fabric of your very being and how God created you. That's what Paul's getting at. To work against God's will is to work against yourself in every single instance. And so if you sow into the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh, and that can only mean corruption and destruction and disintegration. Your sin will find you out. God will not be mocked. However, if you sow in the Spirit, you will reap in the Spirit. And that means joy and peace and assurance and faith and hope regardless of the circumstances. When you don't honor the design that God has given, everything breaks down eventually. Whatever you're sowing, you will reap. You remember back in chapter 5, the main point there. Don't walk in the deeds of the flesh, 
but cultivate and live by the fruit of the Spirit. That was the main emphasis. And remember, to be under the law is to try to earn your salvation, which is to sow to the flesh, to earn something that you can feel good about, where you are and what you've done so that you can please the flesh. So this isn't just about changing your habits or doing new things. You might want to walk out of here this morning and say, well, I'm just going to turn over some new leaves because I don't want destruction in my life. You're still sowing to the flesh. What it really means to sow to the Spirit means to understand that the gospel, to understand the gospel is to say not do, but done. And to live from that. And to get rid of the fear that drives you. To get rid of the selfishness that drives you. Because you say, look at what Jesus Christ has done for me. I hope you won't walk away from all of this and say, I'm going to be good now. Because you can only be saying that out of fear. What do I mean? Well, it's fear that God will get me. People will get me. People will see and they won't like me. I want to feel good. I want them to know, and I want to know that I'm going to heaven, so I'm going to be a really good person. But what does that do? Well, you're operating out of fear. It will fill you with pride. Next thing you know, you're going to look around at your non-Christian friends who all think you're a prude and a bore by now, and then you say, They don't understand the truth. I'm a good person. I don't do the things they do anymore. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. That's pride. And you'll be sowing to the sinful nature. And you'll be reaping destruction. Not at first. But it will germinate and it will begin to grow. And the fleshly pride will grow and grow. And then one of these days, some temptation will come along and it will just knock you flat because the real pride and fear in your heart has never been dealt with. So what will deal with it? The gospel. Pride is dealt with by the gospel that says you are so sinful, you will never earn heaven. So don't try. Your fear is dealt with because the gospel comes to you and says, but God loves you so much he would give you his son. And only when you see that you're so sinful and so loved at the same time you can't possibly earn your way to heaven will you be able to begin to live a free life and a good life and a life that looks at God's law as done for you so that you can walk in an obedient way for your own good and for God's glory. Only then will you start sowing to the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, it's in Paul's final point that we're going to look at this morning in verses 9 and 10. Christians have an obligation to sow seeds of good work into the lives of others, and particularly within the body of Christ. Let's look at chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And let us, grow, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Now this gets us back to the beginning. 
what are you growing weary of and why? I hope we will all ask ourselves that question this morning. What well-doing for the good of the church, for the good of others, either with our money, our time, our gifts, what am I growing weary in because it's expensive or it's draining or it's just lost the luster it once had and it's not exciting anymore? What is that for you? It's easy to get to that place in the flesh, isn't it? But remember the principle. When we sow to the flesh, we reap the flesh. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what am I sowing? You know, I think it will become extremely difficult and increasingly difficult in our current culture to remain faithful to pursuing the things of the Spirit and denying the flesh. We're moving from a culture that by and large doesn't think much about Christianity in one, into one that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. And that could change, but if it doesn't, it will be much more difficult to remain faithful in doing good. Christians are going to have to continually make difficult decisions, and they will put our relationships and our livelihoods on the line, and the temptation is going to be there to just give up. And you know, that's particularly difficult for smaller churches because it's easy to look at all other congregations and saying they're growing in leaps and bounds. There's people falling out of the doors every weekend. We aren't doing that. Why not? So instead of staying faithful to what we believe to be true and right according to God's word, we're tempted to bail on it, to go another direction or just leave it all together. But But Paul's exhorting us, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Keep persevering. Keep giving. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep giving yourself to others. Dying to yourself. Living upon Christ. Loving his church. And don't give up. Why? Because no matter where you turn, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be problem people. And your responsibility is to sow good works into them. And especially especially to those who are in the household of faith, especially to those who are Christians, and even more specifically to those who are covenant members of your local church. And in time, Paul reminds us, there will be a harvest, if not here, in heaven. Perhaps we'll see a great harvest here. But regardless, there will be a day when we see a full harvest in eternity. In heaven, all the sacrificial service that we put in here will be seen as well worth it. God will keep his word. A farmer waits a long time for his harvest. He plants seeds in the ground, it grows mysteriously, and then there is a harvest. It takes perseverance. Now, as a church family, I think we do this pretty well. When someone is sick or suffering, we do a pretty good job of coming alongside them and loving and serving them and doing good to them. But we have to think about every aspect of life together. Is that the case for us across the board? While we have opportunity, let's do good to all men, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Notice Paul relates this verse to what he's written. He writes at the beginning of verse 10 those two words. He says, so then. This is his conclusion to all of it. 
He builds on this exhortation. We're to persevere in our sowing. In verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Therefore, or so then, let us sow while there is opportunity. Today is a day of work, and, and Paul reminds us to seize the opportunity. Seize the chance to not grow weary, but do good. Boldly plunge into the labor before you as the people of God in his church. For all men, and especially for the body of Christ. How are you doing as an individual Christian in this? How are you taking the gifts that God has given you and using them for the good of all men, and especially the body of Christ? How are we doing as a local church? I pray that we continue to press on, that we would continue to do good to all men and do better for all men, and especially to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that in and through us God may be glorified and that we may sow that which will bring a bountiful, beautiful, joy-filled, Christ-exalting harvest that one day be reaped in God's timing. Let's not grow weary. Let's press on together. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the challenge that comes by your word, the challenge to consider our own lives and our own hearts. First and foremost, God, we are thankful that in Christ, all that is necessary for our salvation has been accomplished for us. He has kept the law perfectly. He has died the death we deserve. He was buried in a tomb and raised from the dead that we too can rejoice in the hope of the coming resurrection of our own bodies. And so, Father, we give you thanks that we are not coming here this morning with the urgency to do, but rather we're resting in the joy that it has been done. And because Christ has done it, and because as your people we have the Holy Spirit, we can faithfully look to your word and all that you have commanded, and we can work these things out with joy, keeping in step with the Spirit, And so I pray, God, in that, in light of all of that truth, that you would help us to consider what seeds we are sowing, that we might see a harvest of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Help us, O God, to not grow weary in doing good, but that we would continue to press on and persevere for the good of all men, and especially for the household of faith, the body of Christ. And we ask this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.